Hey guys, I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And, and we're, we're from, from Nature vs. Narcissism, Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Since I've always been fascinated by true crime, I wanted to delve deeper into the criminal mind and discuss why these criminals commit these vile acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was it just plain old narcissism? Join us every week for a brand new episode. You can find us on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Podbean. Don't, Don't call, call the, the cops! cops. Bye! Bye. Welcome to No Better Death, the podcast that knows while you can die no better death than your own, that doesn't mean we can't take a look for the unusual and noteworthy in the deaths of others. Each week we'll take an in-depth look at some out-of-the-ordinary deaths and the events surrounding them. This show will contain explicit language and graphic details. I am your host, Sick Grayson. I am coming to you on a Tuesday night when I should have recorded last Friday night, like I said I was going to, but a 12-hour nap sounded better than recording at the time, so that's what I did, and then I took a, a nap in a big chunk of the day Saturday as well, so I pretty much just slept all weekend instead of getting around to the podcast like I should have. I apologize for keeping you waiting. I'm thinking I need to change the official release date of Tuesday to maybe Friday because I I've never really met the Tuesday deadline so far, maybe three times. Uh, I'm consistently late. So I think if I put that back to like Friday, maybe I'll have a better chance of getting things out on time. Uh, but definitely sorry about the delay. I will apologize ahead of time. I uh, My throat feels real scratchy today, like it's shredded. I don't know why. I haven't been coughing. I, I don't smoke. I vape a little bit, but like I... Something's up with my throat today, and it's real itchy and scratchy, so if my voice isn't the best on this show, uh, on this episode, I do apologize. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like I've got vocal fry right off the bat. Something's up with my throat. Uh, I feel like today's show might run a little long. I'm really not sure. I, I never can really tell. I, I assume once I have about 20 to 25 pages of script, that's an average show. Anything over that, probably going long. So for the sake of brevity, let's just get into it. Obviously, I'm a nerd for all things death and dark and music. But if there's a third thing I'm a nerd for, it's space. I've been to the NASA centers in Texas and Alabama. Haven't had the chance to hit the one in Florida, despite being like five miles from it at one point. I've been to a few other small space centers around the country, and just a month or so ago, I actually got to meet an astronaut. Uh, outside of the official NASA centers, the city where I live, Colorado Springs, probably has the most astronauts of any other city because this city is built on military bases, uh, the Air Force Academy, and Department of Defense contracts. And a lot of the tech companies that get those lucrative contracts aren't just resetting passwords and installing routers. They design everything from missiles and planes to satellites and long-haul space vessels for as-of-yet unlaunched space expeditions. So there's a lot of ties to the space and aeronautical industries around here, and about a month ago or so, 
one on a mission to service the Hubble Space Telescope, big at the Discovery Space Foundation. And this event was basically an attempt to convince kids to go into engineering because there's a shortage of qualified engineers in the government contract sector, which again is anything from computer systems to spaceships. And the speaker at this event was U.S. astronaut Dwayne Digger Carey. Uh, Digger piloted the Columbia. It was really cool listening to him talk about how his career as an Air Force pilot led to joining NASA and what his duties were on the mission. He showed a home movie that he and a fellow astronaut shot while they were up there, and that other astronaut was Mike Massimino, uh, who you would know as astronaut Mike from Big Bang Theory, the guy that went to space with Wallowitz. Uh, so it was a really cool evening. Uh, there were free snacks, so, you know, I ate like three bags of those little crunchy Cheetos. Love those little crunchy Cheetos. And I am the guy that has to read every note, every placard, every display. I can't tell if my family likes going to museums and space centers with me or not because I will let the kids run wild while I read every sentence in the building and it kind of leaves Miss Grayson to wrangle the kids and wander around on her own trying to occupy herself. And I'm there all day. If I pay to get in, I'm learning something. I geek out. I, I've touched rocks from Mars and the moon. I've stood beside the return capsules burnt to shit from their descent. I've been inside the training shuttle that American astronauts practiced in. I eat space ice cream voluntarily. I love this kind of shit. As interesting as space is, as much as we've learned in recent years and as far as we're going to go in the future, all this knowledge of space, our ability to get into it, and what may well be our salvation in the future when we either make this planet unlivable or it's inevitably consumed by the sun, it hasn't been without pain and struggle and sacrifice. Just to get off the ground, we had to employ Nazi scientists who by all rights should have been shot in the fucking face so we could get access to their V2 rocket technology, aka Project Paperclip. Look it up if you don't know. Uh, and have them work side by side with these amazingly brilliant black women who despite being ten times smarter than their white counterparts, weren't even allowed to use the same bathrooms as their co-workers. Think about that, how near polar opposite those two things are. Yet putting them in the same room is what had to be done to achieve the mission of getting into space. The fact that we were even able to break out of our own atmosphere was a miracle. Fatalities weren't just possible, they were all but assured. To never have a space program fatality would have been a miracle requiring odds so astronomically impossible there was no way at least a few people weren't going to die. And while most of these deaths technically occurred on the ground or at an altitude below the Kármán line, which is the boundary between Earth's atmosphere and what's considered space, some of them actually did happen in space, where no one can help you and no one can hear you scream, except the people at Mission Control who can hear you scream, probably while shitting yourself. Scream all you want, there's no AAA in space that they haven't told us about. Resources to MacGyver a fix when you're in a pinch, if something goes wrong during space flight, you're fucked. Some have gotten lucky and averted larger crisis, more than most people realize, actually, and those are just the ones we know about. You know, Russia isn't exactly forthcoming with all their information. For as much of they, as they've told us about the deaths related to their space program, there could be dozens of deaths. There's been over 30 near misses and non-fatal incidents over the history of mankind's space programs, including some very recently. 
In August of 2018, a hole was discovered in the cabin of Soyuz MS-9, currently being investigated as having been intentionally drilled. Less than two months later, MS-10 experienced a launch boost failure, resulting in the shuttle having to prematurely separate from the rocket and attempt a ballistic descent that pushed the cosmonauts inside to almost seven Gs during landing. Issues with the Russian space program may not alarm most Americans, but those Americans would be dumbasses. And why are they dumbasses? Because the U.S. doesn't launch into space anymore. We, and pretty much everyone else in the world right now, hitch a ride with Russia. They're the only ones still dropping that kind of coin on missions into space. So if something goes wrong with a Russian flight, it could potentially impact every country with any kind of space program. Did you know Russia has a mission control in Houston, Texas, the floor beneath the old school U.S. mission control? That's how dominant they currently are in the space program. That regardless of what kind of history they have with the U.S., what kind of actions their government are taking in other countries, despite possible collusion with Trump to hack the election, they're needed when it comes to Earth's space programs. Supposedly, America's lost more astronauts than Russia has lost cosmonauts, but that's assuming we have all the information, which rarely, if ever, happens. Look into the lost cosmonaut theory. It's outside the scope of the show, but if there's any modicum of truth to it, Russia may have lost more cosmonauts than is one cursed with the drive to push the limits of our known boundaries. Whether expanding across unexplored land masses, traversing the oceans and exploring their depths, or traveling into the heavens, we've always been and will always be explorers, regardless of the cost. The stories I have for you in today's episode are no exception. They're stories that hopefully will and should line the walls of buildings and human settlements on Europa, Titan, or as of yet undiscovered far-flung corners of our galaxy and perhaps other galaxies because they're the stories of those who sacrificed everything so that mankind could continue exploring, learning, and finding new places to call home. To date, there have been 23 deaths related to the American and Soviet space programs, including Virgin Galactic. 23 deaths during space missions or testing for space missions. If you were to add in the deaths incurred from flight training accidents and civilians killed on the ground when things have gone wrong during launch, usually contractors and employees tasked with maintaining the launch structures and the like, the death toll climbs to over 150. And while all of these deaths deserve equal treatment and reverie, I'm going to focus mostly on the ones that happened during testing and actual space flight. To avoid confusion later, I need to give you a little bit of background information. From 1959 through 1972, the United States operated a series of three space programs, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Mercury was basically just trying to get people into space, period. Gemini expanded upon that by fine-tuning, piloting, experimenting with docking techniques, and moving around outside the ship mostly to serve as the foundation for the Apollo missions. Apollo was all about landing on and getting off the moon. But the time frames of these programs weren't exactly linear. They ran sort of concurrent to each other. Mercury was 1959 through 63. Gemini was 63 through 66. And Apollo was 61 through 72. So if you notice any overlap of astronauts from certain missions at the time, 
uh, that's why. The space shuttle program, that's the one with the reusable plane-style ship, ran 1981 through 2011. And sprinkled throughout this timeline is Skylab, Mir, ISS, and more. Making things more confusing, I won't be telling these stories chronologically. Rather, I'm going to go in order of a space mission. First, we're going to start with a story that never left the ground, then one that left the ground but didn't make it into space. The third story covers uh, astronauts that actually died in space, and then the fourth one is re-entry and landing. Kicking off Dead in Space, we're going to go back to January 27, 1967, to look at the first major accident in America's space program. Apollo 1 was to be the first mission to test the Apollo Command and Service Module with the crew and was intended to further the overall Apollo mission of landing a man on the moon. Director of Flight Crew Operations Deke Slayton selected the first Apollo crew in January 1966 with Virgil Grissom as command pilot, Edward White as senior pilot, and rookie Don Ezel as pilot. But Ezel dislocated his shoulder twice during weightlessness training and had to undergo surgery, resulting in him dodging the biggest bullet in his life. Slayton replaced him with Roger Chaffee, and NASA announced the crew selection on March 21, 1966. James McDivitt, David Scott, and Russell Schweikert were named as the backup crew. Scheduled to launch with a three-man team on February 21, 1967, the mission would never fly. At 1 p.m. January 27, astronauts Virgil Grisham Edward White and Roger Chaffee entered the Apollo capsule. And right here would be where astronaut Grayson's spaceflight career ended. If you've never seen one of these capsules, they're half the size of a closet and they pack three people in there. My Asperger bubble is easily twice the size of this capsule. I have a meltdown if there's more than four people in an aisle at Walmart. I don't think I could handle being crammed into one of these steel tombs with three other people, two other people, while we fall over 20 miles from space into the ocean which is a whole other set of dangers. And you know someone's farting in there, right? Like I assume at least one out of three people would experience some sort of gastrointestinal distress while undertaking one of the most complex and potentially deadly tasks a human body can endure. One of the three in the capsule, I would most likely be that guy. Maybe not these guys. Their time in the service, as most of the early astronauts were pulled from the Air Force, had steeled them against these kind of fears, or at least showing this kind of fear. So these guys weren't little bitches like me, but I definitely would be having some issues in this capsule. These guys got in the capsule at 1 p.m. on that day and immediately ran into problems. Do you think they did the right thing in halt operations until the problems were resolved? Obviously, the answer is no, or they wouldn't be a story on No Better Death. I have a Volvo that dies randomly ever since I had the catalytic converter replaced, and I can tell when there's going to be problems. If I get in and I notice any little jumps or burps or weird smells, I know this thing's going to leave me stranded on the side of the road that day, so I don't take the car. I use a backup car. My Volvo only goes about 10 miles to my work and back at 60 miles an hour. It stands to reason that if your vehicle goes to space and back with the intent of falling to Earth at thousands of miles an hour while trying to not disintegrate from the heat of atmospheric re-entry, you might not want to drive it when it's acting funny. 
But again, these guys weren't little bitches like me. They're hard. They can handle whatever's coming their way, and they aren't scared by problems that can be fixed by the NASA equivalent of an ASE certified mechanic. A bravery bordering on hubris that, while admirable, doesn't always work out for the best, as we'll see. The first problem occurred when Gus Grissom entered into the spacecraft and hooked up his oxygen supply from the ship. He described a strange odor in the spacesuit loop as a sour smell like buttermilk. The crew stopped to take a sample of the suit loop and after discussion with Grissom, decided to continue the test. The next problem was a high oxygen flow indication which periodically triggered the master alarm. The men discussed this matter with environmental control system personnel who believed the high flow resulted from movement of the crew, and the matter wasn't really resolved. Why was this important? Well, for those that don't know, oxygen is extremely flammable. Its presence in the air we breathe is low enough to not cause a fire hazard, but when it's introduced into an enclosed space in a high enough concentration, say, a tiny little spaceship, the risk of fire or explosion becomes very real. The engineers assumed that this alarm was just being thrown. It was a false alarm being thrown off by the air moving around because of the astronauts moving inside. They didn't actually think there was a high concentration of oxygen, so they just ignored the problem. A third problem arose in communications. At first, faulty communications seemed to exist solely between command pilot Grissom and the control room. The crew made adjustments. Later, the difficulty extended to include communications between the operations and the checkout building and the blockhouse at Complex 34 where this was all taking place. There was, so communications were just kind of down everywhere. This failure in communications forced a hold of the countdown at 5.40 p.m. By 6.31, the test conductors were about ready to pick up the count when the ground instruments showed an unexplained rise in the oxygen flow into the spacesuit. So again, they're getting an alarm that's telling them there's too much oxygen in the environment. But my question about that is, wouldn't they see a change in pressure, like some sort of fluctuation in the cabin pressure, if it's really being caused by the astronauts moving around? It wouldn't just be oxygen sensors. Some sort of pressure sensor or reader would be showing a fluctuation there as well. So anyway, by 6.31, they were getting ready to go into the countdown. This alarm goes off. Uh, they get back to what they're doing, assuming it's, it's nothing. Uh, and they start commencing countdown and, and test launch. Four seconds into this, Chaffee announced almost casually over the intercom, fire. I smell fire. Two seconds later, White's voice was more insistent. Fire in the cockpit. In the blockhouse, engineers and technicians looked up from their consoles to the television monitors pointed at the spacecraft. To their horror, they saw flames licking furiously inside the Apollo capsule, and smoke blurred their pictures. Men who had gone through Mercury and Gemini tests and launches without a major hitch stood momentarily stunned at the turn of events. Their eyes saw what was happening, but their minds refused to believe. Finally, a near-hysterical shout filled the air. There's a fire in the spacecraft. Procedures for emergency escape called for a minimum of 90 seconds, but in practice, the crew had never accomplished the routines in the minimum time. Grissom had to lower White's headrest so White could reach above and behind his left shoulder to actuate a ratchet-type device that would release the first of a series of latches. 
This would be vitally important as the pressure inside the cabin of the ship was so much higher than the outside pressure that it would be impossible to open the pressurized cabin from the outside. It had to be opened from the inside. According to one source, White had actually made part of a turn with the ratchet before he was overcome by smoke. In the meantime, Chaffee had carried out his duties by switching the power and then turning off the cabin lights as to aid in vision. Outside the white room that totally surrounded the spacecraft, Donald O. Babbitt of North American Aviation ordered emergency procedures to rescue the astronauts. Technicians started toward the white room. Then the command module ruptured, which I'm assuming means there was an explosion inside the module. Picture an M-80 going off inside a coffee can. This explosion depressurized the cabin and would have allowed the ship to be opened from the outside, assuming there wasn't something like a raging fire preventing the rescuers from doing so. Flame and thick black clouds of smoke billowed out, filling the room. Now a new danger arose. Many feared that the fire might set off the launch escape system atop Apollo. This in turn could ignite the entire service structure. Instinct told the men to get out while they could. Many did so but others tried to rescue the astronauts. The intense heat and dense smoke drove one after another back, but after about five minutes from the first report of the fire, rescuers finally succeeded in opening the hatch. Unfortunately, by then, there was no one alive to rescue. The astronauts were dead. Firemen arrived within three minutes of the hatch opening, doctors soon thereafter. A medical board determined that the astronauts died of carbon monoxide asphyxia with thermal burns as contributing causes. The board could not say how much of the burns came after the three had died. Fire had destroyed 70% of Grissom's spacesuit, 20% of White's, and 15% of Chaffee's. Doctors treated 27 men for smoke inhalation. Two were hospitalized. Rumors of a disaster spread in the driblets throughout the area. Men who had worked on the day shift returned to see if they could be of any help. Crewmen removed the three charred bodies well after midnight. After removal of the bodies, NASA impounded everything at Launch Complex 34. On February 3rd, NASA Administrator Webb set up a review board to investigate the matter thoroughly. Engineers at the Manned Spacecraft Center duplicated conditions of the Apollo 204 without the crewmen inside the capsule. They reconstructed events in the investigation on Pad 34 showed that the fire started in or near one of the wire bundles to the left and just in front of Grissom's seat on the left side of the cabin, a spot visible to Chaffee. The fire was probably invisible for about five or six seconds until Chaffee sounded the alarm. Witness accounts differ as to how fast everything happened. Gary Probst, an RCA technician at the, at the communication control racks in Area D on the first floor of the launch complex, testified four days after the event that three minutes elapsed between the first shot of fire and the filling of the white room with smoke. Other observers had gathered around his monitor and discussed why the astronauts didn't blow the hatch and why no one entered the white room. One of these men, A.R. Caswell, testified on February 2nd, two days after probes. In answer to a question about the time between the first sign of fire and activity outside the spacecraft in the White Room, he said it appeared to be quite a long period of time, perhaps three or four minutes. The men on the launch tower told a different story. 
Bruce Davis, a systems technician with North American Aviation who was on level A8 of the service structure at the time of the fire, reported an almost instantaneous spread of the fire from the moment of the first warning. I heard someone say, there's a fire in the cockpit. I turned around and after about one second saw flames within the two open access panels in the command module near the umbilical. Jesse Owens, an engineer with North American Systems, stood near the pad's leader's desk when someone shouted, fire. He heard what sounded like the cabin relief valve opening and high velocity gas escaping. Immediately, this gas burst into flames somewhat like lighting an acetylene torch, he said. I turned to go to the white room at the above noted instant, but was met with a flame wall. So basically, everyone's story is different as to how soon after someone yelled fire, where did anyone respond? Some people are saying right away, some are saying kind of within a couple minutes, and some are saying as, as many as three or four minutes. The sudden deaths of three astronauts caused international grief and widespread questioning of the space program. Momentarily, the whole manned lunar program stood in suspense. Writing in Newsweek, Walter Lippmann immediately deplored what he called the pride-spurred rush of the program. The Washington Sunday Star spoke of soaring costs and claimed that no who had more to do with than know how in the choice of North American over Martin Marietta as prime contractor for the spacecraft. A longtime critic of the space program, Senator William Fulbright of Arkansas, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, placed the root cause of the tragedy in the inflexible but meaningless goal of putting an American on the moon by 1970 and called for a full reappraisal of the space program. Distinguished scientist Dr. James Van Allen, discoverer of the radiation belts in space, charged that NASA was losing its soul. It had become a huge engineering, technological, and operational agency with less and less devotion to the true spirit of exploration and to the advancement of basic knowledge. But President Johnson held firm to the predetermined goal and communicated his confidence to NASA. If that guy was mad then, his head would explode now. As a government contractor, I can assure you that this is what happened to every area of the government by the 2000s, not just the space program. A lead editorial in the New York Times spoke of the incompetence and negligence that became apparent as the full story of the disaster came to light, but put the central blame on the technically senseless and highly dangerous dedication to the meaningless timetable of putting a man on the moon by 1970. So a lot of people are saying we shouldn't be trying to push it to get to the moon by 1970 just because Russia was currently in the lead of the space program. We set an arbitrary deadline for no good reason other than to beat Russia, and by pushing that deadline and our resources as thin as they could possibly go, go to meet that deadline, we put lives at risk, which very well could be the truth. The Apollo 1 incident delayed any launches of a manned Apollo mission for over a year while multiple redesigns were implemented into almost every aspect of the program. There was no Apollo 2 or 3, 4, 5, and 6 were unmanned, and 7, finally ready for a manned mission, launched successfully from Compound 34 with crew Wally Shira, Don Easel, and Walter Cunningham on October 11th, 1968. So the guy that had pulled his shoulder out twice and should have been in the first capsule that went up in flame was actually on the next manned mission, Apollo 7. Their mission lasted 10 days and 20 hours with all crew on board returning unharmed. 
And that's the story of Apollo 1 and the crew that died without ever leaving the ground. Uh, again, it seems like another story where there were multiple warning signs that something was going on. We've seen it how many times in other stories we've covered on this show. Somebody says, oh, this is wrong. And then somebody else is like, oh, I think this is wrong too. And despite multiple warnings or omens or signs, whatever you want to call them, people ignore them. They go ahead with what they're doing. And in the end, there's bodies to count. Our next story managed to leave the ground, but wouldn't make it across the Carmen line. Obviously, this is the most well-known space flight disaster. I'm talking about the Space Shuttle Challenger. The Space Shuttle was revolutionary for Earth's space programs. It was the first reusable orbital spacecraft. We did have the X-15, which was reusable, but couldn't go into orbit. It just sort of buzzed uh, the atmosphere right at the Kármán line with a single pilot and collected basic information to bring back for use in the design of what would become orbital space shuttles. The space shuttle debuted in 1981 and wouldn't be challenged until the Russian version, the Buran spacecraft, unveiled in 1988. However, that ship wouldn't go into use due to the crumbling of the USSR at the time. The U.S. Space Shuttle would continue to be used until their retirement in 2011, when each launch began to cost over a billion dollars. Since then, we've been hitching rides on Russian Soyuz rockets while waiting for Boeing and SpaceX to unveil their commercial space vehicles that were supposed to be ready in 2017, but as we know are far behind schedule as most government contracts usually are. Challenger, NASA's second space shuttle to enter service after the Columbia, which sadly we will also discuss in a bit, embarked on its maiden voyage on April 4, 1983 and made a total of nine voyages prior to 1986. So it had done this nine times previously with no problems, and Columbia would complete, I believe, ten missions. So these things had a stellar, no pun intended, record until the events of January 28, 1986. January again. Uh, the, f the first one was in January. Maybe NASA should stop trying to send things into space when it's cold outside. That year, it was scheduled to launch on January 22nd, carrying a seven-member crew that included Krista McAuliffe, a 37-year-old high school social studies instructor from New Hampshire who had entered uh, to win a spot on the mission through NASA's Teacher in Space program. After undergoing months of training, she was set to become the first non-military citizen to travel into space. The other six members of the crew were Commander Dick Scobie, Pilot Michael Smith, Mission Specialist Judy Resnick, Ronald McNair, and Ellison Onizuka, and Payload Specialist Gregory Jarvis. The shuttle was carrying a payload of various items including satellites, monitoring and testing equipment, and materials needed for various experiments. The mission launch from Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral, Florida was delayed for six days due to weather and technical problems. So again, we see there were problems leading up to launch that should have served as a warning or omen that this mission was not ready. However, these warnings went unheeded and at 11.39 a.m., Challenger lifted off. The morning of January 28th was unusually cold. There are pictures of the controls and scaffolding in other parts of the launch pad, and the structure is covered in foot-long icicles and what looks like inches thick of ice. If there's icicles in Florida, it's cold, and engineers warn their superiors that certain components, 
particularly the rubber O-rings that sealed the joints of the shuttle's solid rocket boosters, were vulnerable to failure at low temperatures. An inspection of the launch pad revealed large quantities of ice collecting due to the unusually cold overnight Florida temperatures. NASA had no experience launching the shuttle in temperatures as cold as this. The coldest temperature of a previous launch was 20 degrees warmer. To make each solid rocket booster, the Morton Thaikal factory built four hull segments filled with powdered aluminum, which served as the fuel, and ammonium perchlorate, which was the oxidizer. At the launch site, the fuel segments were assembled vertically. Field joints containing rubber O-ring seals were installed between each fuel segment. The O-rings were never tested in extreme cold. On the morning of the launch, the cold rubber became stiff, failing to fully seal the joints between the fuel segments. As the shuttle ascended, one of the seals on a booster rocket opened just enough to allow a plume of exhaust to leak out. Hot exhaust gases bathed the hull of the cold external tank full of liquid oxygen and hydrogen. And what happens when really hot meets really cold? Something cracks. When that something is a tank full of fuel, something sparks, causing the tank to rupture. And that would be the initial flash you see in the footage. At 73 seconds after liftoff and an altitude of nine miles, the shuttle was torn apart by aerodynamic forces. The two solid rocket boosters continued flying until the NASA range safety officer destroyed them by remote control. The crew compartment ascended to an altitude of 12.3 miles before free falling into the Atlantic Ocean. So they're still climbing with all the chaos going around them and the fuel tanks have separated off and they blew those up with the remote once they were far enough away from the crowd and everything. Once everything else going on, the crew is still going higher. And at that point, with all the trappings of space shuttle being gone, 12.3 miles into the air, this turns into a plane crash. The shuttle is falling 12.3 miles to the Earth below and smashes into the Atlantic Ocean. Supposedly, the crew died when the ship was torn apart, but there are theories, and they're not extreme or conspiracy or out there in any way. There are perfectly valid theories that suggest the crew was actually alive the entire descent and didn't die until they hit the water. We have no way of confirming or disproving this as there were no live communications after the main incident to verify if anyone was still alive at that point. Hundreds on the ground, including the families of McAlfee and the other astronauts on board, stared in disbelief as the shuttle broke up in a plume of smoke and fire. Millions more watched the wrenching tragedy unfold on live television. And this was the first time we saw something like this on TV. In 1986, we didn't even have that much live war coverage yet or anything like that on TV. The Apollo 1 tragedy happened behind closed doors. We didn't get to see that. To most Americans and people worldwide, the space program was perceived as having been nothing but successful with no real danger involved. But this, a space shuttle going up in flames mid-flight, broad daylight on national TV was earth-shaking. This catastrophe isn't really as simple as an O-ring suddenly failed and the ship fell apart. There were warnings. If you get into the details of the Rogers Report, the official investigation into what happened, which included Secretary of State William Rogers, astronaut Neil Armstrong, and test pilot Chuck Yeager, so valid people turning out this report, 
There were warning signs as early as .6 seconds into launch that something was wrong. A direct quote from the Rogers report with some editing for brevity, quote, just after liftoff at .678 seconds into the flight, photographic data show a strong puff of gray smoke was spurting from the vicinity of the aft field joint on the right solid rocket booster. The two pad 39B cameras that would have recorded the precise location of the puff were inoperative. Computer graphic analysis of film from other cameras indicated the initial smoke came from the 270 to 310 degree sector of the circumference of the aft field joint of the right solid rocket booster. I know, a lot of technical speak. This area of the solid rocket booster faces the external tank. The vaporized material streaming from the joint indicated there was not complete sealing action within the joint. So about 0.7 seconds, not even a whole second into the flight, Footage confirmed something was going on. They just couldn't see it at the time of launch because the cameras that would have been pointing directly at this area were offline, probably due to ice coverage. Eight more distinctive puffs of increasingly blacker smoke were recorded between 0.836 seconds and 2.5 seconds. The smoke appeared to puff upwards from the joint, nuge, while each smoke puff was being left behind by the upward flight of the shuttle. The next fresh puff could be seen near the level of the joint. The multiple smoke puffs in this sequence occurred at about four times per second, approximating the frequency of the structural load dynamics and resultant joint flexing. Computer graphics applied to NASA photos from a variety of cameras in this sequence again placed the smoke's puff's origin to the 270 to 310 degrees sector of the original smoke spurt. So all this is saying is that smoke is coming pretty much on a timer as it would uh, if there were a crack in something that shouldn't be there. As the engines are doing their work, as the boosters are doing their work, and the rocket descends, they're seeing puffs of smoke coming out. Like, pretty much the timing of, say, pistons in an engine, if you could trace the exhaust your car is spitting out, something sort of like that, but in puffs rather than a long stream. As the shuttle increased its upward velocity, it flew past the emerging and expanding smoke puffs. The last smoke was seen above the field joint at 2.733 seconds. At 3.375 seconds, the last smoke was visible below the solid rocket boosters and became indiscernible as it mixed with rocket plumes and surrounding atmosphere. The black color and dense composition of the smoke puffs suggests that grease, joint insulation, and rubber O-rings in the joint seal were being burned and eroded by the propellant gases. Main engines had been throttled up to 104% thrust, and the solid rocket boosters were increasing their thrust when the first flickering flame appeared on the right solid rocket booster in the area of the aft field joint. So basically what it's telling you, all the smoke that's been going up to this point was shit burning in between all these connectors and joints that should not have been burning. This first very small flame was detected on image enhanced film at 58.788 seconds into the flight. It appeared to originate at about 305 degrees around the booster circumference at or near the aft field joint. One frame later from the same camera, the flame was visible without image enhancement. It grew to a continuous, well-defined plume at 59.262 seconds. At about the same time, 
telemetry showed a pressure differential between the chamber pressures in the right and left boosters, so the O-ring has failed at this point. The right booster chamber pressure was lower, confirming the growing leak in the area of the field joint. As the flame plume increased in size, it was deflected rearward by the aerodynamic slipstream and circumferentially, some big word, by the protruding structure of the upper ring attaching the booster to the tank. These deflections directed the flame plume onto the surface of the external tank. This sequence of flame spreading is confirmed by analysis of the recovered wreckage. The growing flame also impinged on the strut attaching the solid rocket booster to the external tank. So the fire, is, the fire and the hot gases are hitting the, the outside of the tank. At about 62 seconds into the flight, the control system began to react to counter the forces caused by the plume and its effects. The first visual indication that swirling flame from the right solid rocket booster breached the external tank was at 64.66 seconds, when there was an abrupt change in the shape and color of the plume. This indicated that it was mixing with leaking hydrogen from the external tank. Changes in the hydrogen tank pressurization confirmed the leak. Within 45 milliseconds of the breach of the external tank, a bright sustained glow developed on the back-tiled underside of the Challenger between it and the external tank. This is fuel burning off now. Beginning at about 72 seconds, a series of events occurred extremely rapidly that terminated the flight. Terminated the flight. It sounds so technical, right? You're talking about an event that killed seven people and destroyed the lives of their loved ones forever, and you're just going to say that the flight was terminated. Kind of cold. Data indicated a wide variety of flight system actions that support the visual evidence of the photos as the shuttle struggled futilely against the forces that were destroying it. At about 72.2 seconds, the lower strut linking the solid rocket booster and the external tank was severed or pulled away from the weakened hydrogen tank, permitting the right solid rocket booster to rotate around the upper attachment strut. 73.124 seconds. White vapor pattern is observed blooming from the side of the external tank bottom dome. This was the beginning of the structural failure of the hydrogen tank that culminated in the entire dome dropping away. This released massive amounts of liquid hydrogen from the tank and created a sudden forward thrust about 2 to 3 million pounds, pushing the hydrogen tank upward into the internal tank structure. At about the same time, the right solid rocket booster impacted the inner tank structure and the lower part of the liquid oxygen tank. So at this point, you've got the oxygen tank slamming into the hydrogen tank, creating highly concentrated peroxide, basically. And the thing a lot of people don't know about peroxide is while in its weak form that you get at the store, it's good for a mouthwash or cleaning wounds. In a concentration like this, peroxide will eat through skin and bone. Within milliseconds, there was a massive, almost explosive burning of the hydrogen streaming from the failed tank bottom and the liquid oxygen breach in the area of the inner tank. While traveling at Mach 1.92 at an altitude of 46,000 feet, the Challenger was totally enveloped in the explosive burn. The Challenger's reaction control system ruptured and hypergolic burn of its propellants occurred as it exited the oxygen-hydrogen flames. 
The reddish-brown colors of the hypergolic fuel burn are visible on the edge of the main fireball. The orbiter, under severe aerodynamic loads, broke into several large sections which emerged from the fireball. Separate sections that can be identified on film include the main engine and tail section with the engine still burning, one wing of the orbiter, and the forward fuselage trailing a mass of umbilical lines pulled loose from the payload bay. So I know that got really technical, we broke down a lot of timing there, and it was probably the most boring thing you've had to endure on my show so far. But it really does paint the picture for you, even if you're not technical or you don't know a lot about this shit, which I'm no, I'm no genius or expert. I'm just a guy who thinks space stuff is cool, but just a basic understanding of what the tanks and stuff look like, this really tells you how horrible this became from in just a matter of seconds, less than a minute and a half. This all happened, and breaking it down in this kind of detail really shows what you can't see from the outside watching the footage. I mean, in the footage, it's just a little plane went up, it goes poof, there's a flame, it fell to the ground. But when you break it down by the actual report, you really get a sense of how horrible it was. Now imagine if the cameras on the launch pad had been working that day so they could have caught the first sign of smoke at 0.6 seconds. Maybe somebody could have made the decision to prematurely separate the shuttle from the tank and try to land it. You know, even if it was an emergency landing over the water. Or what if they had just waited for better weather? Whatever they were doing up there, releasing a couple satellites and running some experiments, was not worth the lives of seven people. If your launch controls are covered in an inch of ice, maybe don't launch that day. If the cameras monitoring your multi-billion dollar venture and the lives of seven people aren't online, maybe get them working before you launch. Again, we see neglect and bad decision making. There were multiple signs this could go bad. They had already delayed the launch for days due to the knowledge that things could go bad in this kind of weather and they still decided to do it. And look what happens. This was negligence all the way around. The government does not give a fuck about your safety. That's all I can muster to say about this. This one gets me so flustered. Just remember to look out for your own best interests because no one else can be trusted to do so. And with that, it's time for five fast facts about space travel. One, William Sapphire was commissioned to write a speech for Richard Nixon in the event the Apollo 11 astronauts became stranded on the moon. It stated, fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, to search for the truth and understanding. Imagine that, man, having a eulogy written for you in case you died at work that day. 2. Astronauts earn a yearly salary between $64,000 and $141,000. There have been, however, certain perks to the job. What kind of perks? A GM offered special, practically free lease terms to astronauts on vehicles, specifically Corvettes, and as such, many early astronauts drove a Corvette. One notable exception being John Glenn, who drove a much more family-friendly station wagon. 3. 
The Big Bang Theory joke about Wallowitz's space toilet not being able to handle Russian diets is actually based in truth. The biggest argument between American and Russian astronauts on the ISS is use of bathroom facilities because Russians, whose meals include jellied fish and borscht, have a tendency to clog the toilets, so American astronauts have banned them from using their potties. 4. No life insurance company on the planet would insure the Apollo 11 astronauts, so they created a backup plan of signing autograph photos that could later be sold by their families if they needed money in the event of a catastrophe. 5. What does space smell like? After going on spacewalks, most report a hot, meaty-slash-metallic scent. Others assert that there's a fruity note of raspberry and rum, or acrid odor like welding fumes. No truly inclusive description has ever been created, and NASA's attempts to recreate the indescribable scent have generally met with failure. And I'm going to throw in a fun sixth fact here, as I do sometimes. Uh, someone actually has shit themselves in space. Frank Borman, commander of the Apollo 8 mission, awoke from a nap with an upset stomach. He vomited and had diarrhea, the globules of which floated all over inside the ship in zero gravity. The men cleaned it up and Borman insisted his sickness not be relayed back to mission control, but the other astronauts insisted it be reported. After taking some medication, he was all better. So nothing major. He didn't get some kind of space stomach flu or anything like that. And that has been six fast facts about space travel. From the ground through launch, we finally reach space and the tale of the doomed crew of Russia's Soyuz 11, the only Earth-born spacefarers to ever die in what can technically be considered outer space, or at least as far as we know. The space race has always appeared to be between the U.S. and Russia, despite France having a very admirable space program that's contributed to the programs of other countries in countless ways, the world's always viewed it as U.S. v. Russia. The U.S. launched the first rocket into space, though it was mostly German tech, as well as the first life forms, fruit flies. The U.S. also launched the first mammals into space, though they didn't survive their missions. Russia was the first to succeed in bringing animals back from space alive, as well as putting the first human in space the first, and the first unmanned craft on the moon. The U.S. put the first humans on the moon, a record still held by our country today. Russia had the first spacewalk, first space station, first docking with a space station, and first time humans actually spent inside a space station at 23 days. And it's this last accomplishment that brings us to the story of Soyuz 11. Soyuz 11 was the only manned mission to board the world's first space station, Salyut 1. The original crew for Soyuz 11 consisted of Alexei Leninov, Valery Kubasov, and Pyotr Kolodin. A medical x-ray examination four days before launch suggested that Kubasov might have tuberculosis, and according to the mission rules, the crew was replaced with the backup crew, Gregory Dobrovlosky, Vladislav Volkov, and Viktor Patsyev. And this is probably the only time that tuberculosis actually saved someone's life. Three lives, actually. For Dobrovsky and Patsyev, this was to be their first space mission. The Soyuz 7K OKS spacecraft was launched on June 6, 1969. 
1971 from Bankanur Kosadrome in Central Kazakh SSR. It would return on June 29th. And this is U.S. time, just in case you notice a one-day difference among various sources. You know, Russia's technically a day ahead of us, so we say June 6th and 29th, but according to the Russian calendar, it was June 7th and 30th. Several months earlier, the first mission to the Salyut, Soyuz 10, had failed to successfully dock with the station. Soyuz 11 successfully docked with Salyut 1 on June 7th, and the cosmonauts remained on board for 22 days, setting space endurance records that would hold until the American Skylab 2 mission in May of 1973. Upon first entering the station, the crew encountered a smoky and burnt atmosphere, and after replacing part of the ventilation system, spent the next day back in the Soyuz until the air had cleared out. Their stay in Salyut was productive, including live television broadcasts. And these were daily broadcasts. The Russian government gave them a primetime TV slot every day for like two weeks. They quickly became national celebrities and symbols of the might, intelligence, and ingenuity of the Russian people. Their status would only serve to break the hearts of a nation a few days later. A fire broke out on day 11 of their stay, causing mission planners to consider abandoning the station. The planned highlight of the mission was to have been the observation of an N-1 rocket launch, but the launch was postponed. The crew also found that using the exercise treadmill as they were required to twice a day caused the whole station to vibrate. Russian newspaper Pravda released news of the mission in regular updates while it was in progress. The crew completed scheduled experiments which emphasized the study of human performance under and in reaction to prolonged weightlessness. On the 29th, after completing their flight plan, the space dwellers transferred their scientific records, film, and logbooks to the Soyuz in preparation of their return home. At 9.28 in the evening, Dobrovolsky unlocked the ship and drifted free from the space station. After three additional orbits, the Soyuz 11 crew notified ground control that they were beginning their descent. Mission Control radioed, Goodbye, Yantar, till we see you on the Mother Earth. Dobrovolsky replied, Thank you, be seeing you, I am starting orientation, meaning he was getting ready to initiate the almost completely automatic descent. Communications went down around this time. The descent involved detaching the descent vehicle from the orbiter, so you've got two small vehicles making up one big vehicle. To separate the descent capsule from the orbiter, a series of charges are set up, like uh, explosive bolts basically and it's believed that instead of firing one at a time as they should have, all charges went off simultaneously, and the force of all the charges exploding at once caused a breathing ventilation valve that controlled airflow and cabin pressure to be ripped apart. What resulted was the rapid loss of all oxygen in the cabin, and if air is getting out, then the vacuum of space is getting in, and this is no bueno, because your lungs fill up with atmospheric pressure and rupture. Then the nitrogen in your blood dissolves, causing a bubbling like a shaken soda. This causes a person to turn blue and begin swelling from the inside out. Blood vessels burst and you go deaf and blind. Water, which makes up 70% of your body, begins vaporizing, causing the swelling to get worse. All the while you're experiencing the worst cold imaginable. 
Actually, it's kind of unimaginable. It's that extreme. In a worst case scenario, all this can cause your brain to shut down within 15 seconds. In more optimal conditions, you have about 90 seconds max. The time from discharging the orbiter to re-entering Earth's atmosphere where the cabin would re-pressurize and have at least minimal oxygen to keep someone alive takes a lot longer than 90 seconds. How long? Long enough to die. With communications being down, there was no way for control to know this was happening, and with descent being automated, everything appeared to be fine. The capsule landed successfully in Kazakhstan, and the retrieval team, having no reason to think anything was amiss, found the capsule and knocked on the side to let the cosmonauts know they were there. There was no response from inside the capsule. Upon opening the door, the retrieval team found all three cosmonauts slumped over in their seats, unresponsive, blue, and bleeding from the ears and nose. Dobrovolsky was still warm, so resuscitation attempts were made, but it was too late. All three were dead before they re-entered Earth's atmosphere. Autopsies concluded they had died from hemorrhaging of blood vessels in the brain with asphyxiation and cardiac arrest as contributing causes. Had they been wearing their pressurized and oxygenated spacesuits during the descent, they would have survived. And after the events of the Soyuz 11, wearing spacesuits during descent became mandatory in all Russian craft. The Soviet state media attempted to downplay the tragic end of the mission and instead emphasized its accomplishments during the crew's stay aboard Salyut 1. It was reported that upon hearing the news, many Russian citizens wept openly in the streets. The cosmonauts were given a large state funeral and buried in the Kremlin Wall necropolis at Red Square, near the remains of Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. U.S. astronaut Tom Stafford was one of the pallbearers. They were also each posthumously awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union Medal. U.S. President Richard Nixon issued an official statement following the accident. The American people join in expressing to you and the Soviet people our deepest sympathy on the tragic deaths of the three Soviet cosmonauts. The whole world followed the exploits of these courageous explorers of the unknown and shares the anguish of their tragedy. But the achievements of cosmonauts Dobrovolsky, Volkov, and Patsayev remain. It will, I am sure, prove to have contributed greatly to the further achievements of the Soviet program for the exploration of space and thus to the widening of man's horizons. So we've ground tested, launched, floated around in space for a while, and now it's time to come back down to Earth with the February 1st, 2003 Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. And it was probably just natural causes or things outside the control of the space program, right? Fucking wrong. We will see here that once again, People raised concerns about an issue, those concerns were ignored, and seven people were shot into space in a vehicle that was known to be compromised. Fucking negligence and lack of basic safety concerns. I never intended for negligence to be a running theme on this show. It's just what was uncovered once I started looking into almost every death story ever. Space Shuttle Columbia was the first space-rated orbiter in NASA's space shuttle fleet. It launched for the first time on April 12, 1981, the first flight of the space shuttle program, and on the 20th anniversary of the first human space flight, Russia's Vostok 1. Over 22 years of service, Columbia completed 27 missions. 
It was originally scheduled to lift off in late 1979, but the launch date was delayed by problems with both the space shuttle main engine as well as the thermal protection system. On March 19, 1981, during preparations for a ground test, workers were asphyxiated while working in Columbia's nitrogen-purged aft engine compartment, resulting in three fatalities. Columbia's first 27 missions went relatively well, but the 28th would end in tragedy. So see here, I told you there were plenty of deaths on the ground for people that weren't astronauts, and we saw three right here just in getting Columbia ready for its first flight. There were seven people on the crew of Columbia's final mission, Colonel Rick Husband, Commander William McCool, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Anderson, Captain David Brown, Captain Laurel Clark, Ian Ramon, the first and thus far only Israeli astronaut, and on her second mission, engineer Kaplana Chawla, the first Indian woman to visit space. Their mission lasted 16 days and included such tasks as testing various payloads and technology and microgravity experiments. The mission was considered to have gone well and all crew members were in good spirits when they began their return to Earth. They even shot a video as they began re-entry that showed everything going well. You can watch this video online. I'm not going to put the audio on as I don't think it would be very intelligible. The audio is kind of crappy. Uh, but it's out there if you want to see it, just look it up on YouTube. It seemed no different than any other space mission that had gone off without a hitch. Except for one thing. And this one thing happened during launch, so Command was aware of it. During launch on January 16th, a suitcase-sized piece of foam insulation fell off an external fuel tank and struck the left wing of the shuttle. NASA was aware of this and opted to do nothing about it since foam shedding, as it had been called, had become a rather common occurrence with the space launches and thus far had caused no problems. However, thus far, they hadn't caused any damage to a wing. So this wasn't just a common, oh, the styrofoam fell off and it bumped something and fell to the ground, it's fine. This hit an integral piece of the ship. And some, some NASA engineers had warned that this could be catastrophic, but their concerns went unheard. It was also decided that there was nothing the crew would have been able to do about fixing it while in orbit anyway, and as such, nothing was done about it. I don't think they even told the crew. They shot seven people into space in a fucked up plane and didn't even give them the necessary information nor option to make their own decisions about an issue that could and would eventually end their lives. If you ask me, the solution would have been to send another shuttle up with the proper tools and materials to look for and repair any damage. And I know for a fact, I can 100% certainty, had NASA told those seven astronauts, hey, you've got some wing damage, uh, what do you want to do about it? They would have said, we are sitting here until you send someone to help us fix it. Seems like that would have been the most logical course of action. Maybe nothing would happen, but given the chance something could go wrong, NASA should have been proactive and tried to get the ship inspected and repaired before letting the Columbia re-enter the atmosphere. But they didn't, and that's why the Columbia is on no better death and not in a museum with the other space shuttles that didn't explode or disintegrate. On the morning of February 1, 2003, as the Columbia mission was beginning its descent back to Earth, Mission Control started receiving unusual readings from the tire pressure and temperature sensors on the shuttle's left wing. 
They were briefly able to contact the crew, but lost communication before they were able to address the concerns. Because the concerns should have been addressed weeks ago. Shortly after the shuttle crossed the coast of California while it was at an altitude of over 230,000 feet, civilians started seeing debris falling from the sky. Several unsuccessful attempts at communications were made over the next few minutes as Columbia traveled over California to Texas. Around the time the Columbia should have been landing at the Kennedy Space Center, eyewitnesses near Dallas began reporting that the shuttle had disintegrated overhead. At 9.12 a.m., Entry Flight Director Leroy Kane instigated NASA's contingency plan and alerted search and rescue teams in Texas and Louisiana. Two helicopter pilots would die in a crash while searching for debris. Search and rescue teams, along with thousands of volunteers, spent several weeks combing through parts of Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas trying to recover as much of Columbia as possible. NASA was eventually able to recover 84,000 pieces of debris, which added up to about 40% of the space shuttle. That also means 60% of Columbia is still laying around probably in the middle of nowhere desert territory in Texas and maybe swamps in Louisiana. Who knows? If you live in any of the southern areas where the Columbia would have traveled over and you happen to find random scraps of metal or something, hang on to a man you never know could be part of the Columbia. Within the thousands of pieces of debris, NASA was able to locate the remains of each of the crew members verified through DNA. An investigation into the incident later determined that the foam shed during Columbia's launch created a hole in the left wing, which caused extensive damage to the shuttle's sensors and allowed atmospheric gas to leak into the cabin during de-orbit. The resulting damage caused the craft to lose control and disintegrate as it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, killing everyone on board. However, there were survivors. A canister of worms that had been part of the experiment survived the intense heat of re-entry and the crash. It was determined that the astronauts slipped into unconsciousness within seconds and their bodies were whipped around in seats whose restraints failed as the Space Shuttle Columbia spun out of control and disintegrated, according to a report from NASA. While the astronauts' upper bodies flailed, the helmets that were supposed to protect them ended up acting as battering rams, and lethal trauma occurred to the unconscious or deceased crew due to the lack of upper body support and restraint. Investigators state bluntly in the 400-page report that better equipment in the crew cabin would not have saved the astronauts on the morning of February 1st, as the Columbia disintegrated after re-entering the atmosphere on the way to its landing strip. The breakup of the crew module and the crew's subsequent exposure to hypersonic entry conditions was not survivable by any currently existing capacity. The report also added, there is no known complete protection from the breakup event except to prevent its occurrence. Ding, ding, can't stop it while it's happening. You can't stop in the middle of an airplane crash and fix what was going wrong. The only way to prevent this is to be proactive and do everything you can to stop it from happening in the first place, like sending another ship to check for damage before re-entry. The report reconstructs the crew's last minutes, including the warning signs that things were going badly wrong and alerts about tire pressure, landing gear problems, and efforts by the computerized flight system to compensate for the growing damage. It listed five lethal events related to the breakup of the shuttle, including depressurization of the crew module, the forces of being spun, the exposure to vacuum and low temperatures of the upper atmosphere, and impact with the ground. 
The craft went into a nauseating flat spin and the pilot, Commander McCool, flipped switches in a futile effort to deal with the problems. The troubles came on so quickly that some crew members didn't have time to finish putting on their gloves and helmets. The sudden loss of cabin pressure asphyxiated the astronauts within seconds. Pamela Melroy, a shuttle commander and a leader of the study team, said in a conference call that the crew was doing everything they were trained to do and they were doing everything right as disaster struck. President George W. Bush released a statement on the day of the Columbia disaster commemorating the astronauts who gave their lives and also reiterating the importance of space exploration. In an age when space flight has come to seem almost routine, it is easy to overlook the dangers of travel by rocket and the difficulties of navigating the fierce outer atmosphere of Earth. These astronauts knew the dangers and they faced them willingly, knowing they had a high and noble purpose in life. The cause for which they died will continue. Mankind is led into the darkness beyond our world by the inspiration of discovery and the longing to understand. Our journey into space will go on. The most cohesive statement that Haftard ever muttered, probably due to him not having written it. Although there is only one day each year formally dedicated to remembering those who lost their lives in the pursuit of space exploration, the crew members' legacies continue to live on each day. Observances for NASA's annual Day of Remembrance today are held at Virginia's Arlington National Cemetery, Florida's Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, and multiple other NASA centers. And that, Death Nerds, is Episode 17, Dead in Space. What did we learn? Be proactive about your own safety. As has been said at least 16 times before on this show, because no one else is going to do it for you. Voice your concerns about things loud enough for people to actually listen to you and demand action be taken. Don't stop throwing fit until someone actually does something. It could save lives and avert tragedy. Also, we need to have a greater respect for these spacefaring daredevils who risk their lives to learn more about the universe in which we live. They're out there discovering things that may well save our planet, or at least our species, one day. And we learn that worms are probably the most hardcore creatures on Earth. I do want to apologize again for my voice. As I said earlier, my throat is really itchy and scratchy and dry today for some reason. Hopefully you were able to hear everything I said. Hopefully I sounded coherent. If not, my apologies. I will uh, hopefully be back to my butter-smooth, very white voice next week. No better death .info, uh, no www on that for some technical reason. Uh, just no better death .info or no better death .com for all information on no better death, show notes, links to social media, etc., etc. Force your friends at gunpoint if you have to to listen to the show. Be sure to review, subscribe, like, share, retweet, whatever. It's appreciated more than you know. And stay tuned for future episodes, website updates, and merch Patreon stuff I'm working on. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff in the works. I just need to find time to uh, iron out the details, cross the T's, and, and dot the lowercase J's. Uh, if you have any personal experiences with death, stories you want to hear on the show, or any other random thing to say to me or your fellow death nerds, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, or NoBetterDeath at Gmail. I'll make sure to get you on the show. 
Uh, I have an emotion as close to love as my borderline psychopathic Asperger brain will allow for each and every one of you that tune in every week, that spread word of the show, that talk to me on Facebook and Twitter. It truly is appreciated more than I know how to say. My name is Sick. I ain't getting in that fucking rocket, Grayson. Until next time, try not to die.